Welcome to the second season of Over to Europe. This podcast is produced by the community of Civica, the European University of Social Sciences. Civica unites eight leading European higher education institutions to create the next generation European university. One of the primary goals of Civica is to connect these eight universities to promote the exchange of knowledge and resources for the European common good. In the second season, we zoom into Civica's research focus areas. For Civica, research is one of the key instruments to achieve its long-term goal of creating shared European knowledge. Thanks to the newly launched project Civica Research, the Alliance will continue to deepen its collaborations in research around these major areas. We talk to researchers and faculty members from the eight Civica partner universities to bring you cutting-edge European research in social sciences. I'm your host, Aniket Narawad, a first-year Master of Public Policy student at Hertie School, Berlin. In the last few decades, we have seen a swift change in technologies and digital technologies have been at the forefront of it. Due to technological breakthroughs and affordable access, these technologies touch a very large number of people in society. These technologies allowed us to connect with people across the globe easily. These technologies made it easy for us to do business from our hands. These technologies made us far more efficient and productive. The introduction of such technologies has changed how we interact, communicate and organize ourselves as human beings. It also impacts our governance systems. These governance systems have evolved over hundreds of years based on our older ways of functioning as human beings. We have already seen social media impacting democracy in the last decades. There are already cases how governments can use artificial intelligence to increase surveillance over their citizens. Digital technologies consist of a wide range of technologies. In this episode, we will touch upon two key technologies that have changed our lives and posed significant regulatory challenges to the government, social media platforms and artificial intelligence. Talking to the experts will allow us to get a framework about how researchers as well as governments and regulatory bodies are approaching these technologies. In this episode, to discuss issues related to social media platform I spoke to Jakob Johansson, a PhD researcher working on the impact of social media on democracy at the European University Institute. In the second half, I speak with Joanna Bryson, a leading researcher in the field of artificial intelligence and the professor of ethics and technology at Hertie School Berlin. So social media has changed how we interact with each other in several ways. And this is also true when it comes to government and citizen relationship. How do you think the relationship between state and government has evolved since the involvement of social media, especially how people organize, how they raise their voices, how uh, social media has changed the power of people? Obviously, social media has given people a new means for making their voices heard, for sharing information, for organizing around issues that they find important. And this has, through social media, arguably become easier than ever before. In some respects, this has helped shift power from former elites to the people. In obvious cases would be the Arab Spring. This was the first case in which people truly realized the power of social media. Recently, cases like the Black Lives Matter protests, the Me Too movement. Also, you can say cases where ordinary people 
and groups that were perhaps previously marginalized from the public debate have been able, partly through social media, to make their voices heard and to gain momentum for their cause. In this sense, social media has, at least in some cases, helped shift uh, power from former elites to previously marginalized groups. But whether social media, on balance, has shifted power from elites or from governments to the people is a very difficult question to answer. Because obviously we've also seen how after the first more optimistic period where everyone believed that social media was democratizing power, we've seen how autocratic leaders have found out how to exploit social media to their advantage by spreading disinformation. And also on social media platforms like Facebook offer politicians and corporations the opportunity of making targeted advertisements, which could potentially be very effective in, in persuading people for their cause. And so social media platforms also now offers existing elites a, a very useful tool for increasing their power. Can you just a little bit talk more about what is the impact of the political manipulation that is a possibility through social media on public debate? A lot of political actors have been using bots to artificially inflate their messages across different social media platforms. So I, I'm not sure how big the impact of bots is. It's certainly there. How big it is, I'm not sure. But what I would like to say is that regardless of whether people use bots or not to get the message across, one thing that research has shown is that certain messages are more impactful than others on social media. Some messages go viral much more easily than others. And what seems to characterize the messages that easily go viral is that they are highly emotional. Messages that express outrage and anger, but also more positive emotions like enthusiasm, go viral much more easily than other messages. If you can exploit this to your advantage, you can manipulate a public debate in some cases, we've seen whether this is deliberate or not. In cases like Black Lives Matter protests, for instance, we've seen how videos of black people being strangled by police officers and the outrage generated by seeing those videos have spread all over social media very quickly and has helped attract attention to what most people would probably agree is a, is a worthy cause. The power of emotions can help propel progressive causes, but it can also distract people's attention. Talking about the emotions that can be exploited, can be done by both sides. As a result, we can see there's a massive divide in the in the society today. What do you think about the division that is caused by social media? What do you think the impact of social media has been on the political division and how that is overall impacting our governance systems as a result? Thank you. That's a very good question. Also, the topic of my PhD dissertation. What I would say is that despite the fact that it appears so obvious to many observers that social media must have something to do with the division we see in many Western societies today, there's still not a lot of research on this issue. Most of the research that's been done so far has looked at whether social media users live in echo chambers or not. And this makes sense because if social media users primarily come across information that confirms the political views they hold already, over time, they will grow more extreme in their views and each side will grow further apart from each other. So it makes perfect sense looking at echo chambers. But interestingly, even though most people think that social media users primarily live in echo chambers, 
The research that's been done so far has shown that this is not actually the case. In fact, social media users see a fairly balanced set of information. They might see more information that confirms their views, but they also see quite a lot of information coming from counter-attitudinal so information that challenges their views. Today, the issue that is being discussed is how are we affected by seeing information that challenges our views on social media. And here, my own research shows that people do, in fact, take into account other people's views. A few of our studies have found the opposite. So we're in a situation where we don't really know exactly what's going on. It's difficult to say if social media increases polarization. Let's take an example about COVID-19 and how policies around COVID-19 has been impacted by the narratives on social media. How do you think the policies that were implemented by governments are impacted by the narratives of people? Considering we have been in lockdown for a long time, everyone has opinion on it and everyone has something to say about it. How do you think this opinion of people that is expressed on social media on a wide scale has impacted the regulations and the policies around COVID-19? If you look at some of the most popular messages, emotions also around COVID on social media, at the beginning of the pandemic, fear was the dominating emotion on, on Twitter. Most people expressed how they feared for the consequences of COVID. And obviously, if this is something government have taken into account, then social media has perhaps only contributed to governments implementing more cautious policies. What a lot of people have noted and what also seems true is that, of course, there's been some resistance to vaccines and people who are cautious or even against vaccines have been very vocal on social media. I think if this has had any effect on government, at, at least that's from my experience here in Denmark, the effect has been to make government more responsive to people's needs and to be very careful in their messaging about vaccines, what are the risks, what are the benefits, and not just require all people to be vaccinated without any questions. In this sense, even though most of us would probably agree that it's important to get vaccinated, I think social media has helped some people with, with doubts to get the message across and, and perhaps get government to be a little more responsive. And then you might say locally, despite the fact that anti-vaccine messages and narratives appear to have been very widespread on social media, in most countries, the uptake of vaccines is, is really high. The United States is a particular perhaps unique case, but in most Western countries, uptake of vaccines have been really high. Next question. One of the other, other issues with social media is surveillance of citizens. If you look at the developing countries and also much more authoritarian countries, social media has been used as a tool to curb liberties of people. What do you think about the relationship between surveillance and social media? Unfortunately, my own research has focused mostly on Western countries. And here, as, as far as I can gather, the discussion is not so much around social media platforms being used by governments to spy on people, or, but rather how social media is collecting a lot of data on people without their consent, which can be used for targeted advertisements. As is the case for most issues around social media, the empirical knowledge we have so far is very limited. And this has to do mainly with the fact that it's very difficult to get access to data from social media. It's very difficult to know who actually uses targeted advertisements what data do they target their audience on the basis of? It's very difficult to know what information people see in their social media news feeds. It's quite difficult to know exactly what are the effects of social media on people's attitudes and behavior. 
But I have seen at least one recent study where they tried to make targeted advertisements. And they found that compared to advertisements that were not targeted, targeted advertisements were indeed much more effective. They looked at whether they could decrease people's self-reported likelihood of voting for Joe Biden in the recent U.S. election. And they found that with targeted advertisement, they could reduce people's likelihood of voting for Joe Biden with around 7% compared to advertisements that are not targeted. So it seems that at least theoretically, targeted advertisements do have the power to persuade people. And obviously, this can have negative consequences for democracy if people with money can easily dissuade people from voting and can persuade people to vote for someone that they might not otherwise have voted for. We see a massive impact of social media and these technologies on democracy, but we don't have research. So how do we regulate a technology that might have potentially fatal impact on the society? You say social media has a large impact on society. That's the assumption. But my point would be to say we actually don't know for sure. We have some evidence pointing to possible effects on political participation, on people's attitudes, etc. But we don't have very clear indications of how big the impact is. The first step is obviously to get more knowledge. And I know this is difficult, but I think it's important for governments to put more pressure on social media platforms to allow researchers access to their data. There has been different initiatives and some of them did not come to fruition. As, as far as I'm concerned, in the U.S., there's some collaboration between researchers and Facebook where they try to find out if Facebook had an impact on the recent U.S. election. So there are some collaborations going on, and I think this is very positive. The first thing would be to say we need much more evidence and we need much more collaboration with social media platforms. Let's take an example. Fake news was considered by a lot of people to be a large problem. And some even went so far as to say that fake news decided the U.S. election in 2016 in favor of Donald Trump. Well, recent research, which has been conducted four years after the fact, has shown that people did not actually see that many fake news during the 2016 election. So it's very unlikely that fake news was the main cause of the U.S. election. But because it gained a lot of traction in, in mainstream media and because it seemed a lot of people were anyway shocked uh, at seeing Donald Trump win the election, fake news was this kind of easy answer to the question of how come Donald Trump ended up as US president. But with more research, we find out that maybe fake news is not such a big problem. So this just goes to show how research is important, right? Even if we can't get access to the data we would want from social media companies, I, I think it's still possible to make regulations where we try to anticipate what might the possible effects of social media be. So we have some idea of what information do people see on social media, of what are the dominating debates on social media. So we can make some studies, even without access to data from social media, where we try to simulate what are the possible effects of, of these phenomena. If we find that they are negative, then maybe it's necessary to regulate against them. Tracking down fake news. How do we do that? There are billions of news. How do we implement, even if we found hypothetically impact of fake news, so how do we track it down? You are absolutely right. This is very, very difficult. And I can understand why social media companies have a hard time moderating the content that appears on their platforms. Because as you say, there are millions of pieces of information popping up every day. So this is a huge challenge, of course. They are already working on this and they have been working on this from day one as far as I understand. 
Facebook, Google, etc., they have a lot of content moderators employed who constantly monitor social media for information like this and, and remove it as, as soon as they see it. Social media companies are already trying to regulate content and they are already removing a lot of content every day. Content that most of us agree should be removed, like child pornography, terrorist videos, etc., so it's clear that they seem to have the capacity to remove content. The question is perhaps more about what content should be removed and what should not be removed. One possibility is doing like Germany, who implemented a law in 2018 that required social media companies to take down content that had been reported by users and was illegal according to the constitution of Germany. Of course, there is this whole question of who should decide what content should stay on site, who should decide what content gets to be removed. And I think building on the country's existing legal framework is a good way forward because then at least you have the possibility of changing via democratic means the laws that govern what content should be allowed and what content should not be allowed. The alternative right now is that social media companies themselves decide what content should be on their sites and what content should not be on their sites. There's very little transparency there. We have very little knowledge about when and why they decide to remove some content. What are people's possibilities of appealing if their content has been removed for the wrong reasons? I think making legislation like Germany is, is a good start. One of the impacts of social media and censoring is values such as liberty. When you try to restrict people what they can say and what they cannot say, it impacts directly on these values. What's the impact of social media on how we look at these values such as liberty and how do we balance between innovation and regulation? In terms of liberty, I would again just say that I think it's a good way to start to go with the existing legislation of a country. So if a country forbids hate speech or if a country forbids anti-Semitic statements, then obviously that should be forbidden on social media platforms too. And then the way to do it in practice is, is that either you require social media companies themselves to identify all speech that they deem to be anti-Semitic or hate speech and then take it down as soon as they see it. Or you work through a more bottom-up process where you rely on social media users who flag information that they find inappropriate. And then you decide in each case if it was illegal or not. That was Jakob Johansson, a researcher with a focus on social media platforms. He has interestingly pointed out how we might be falsely accusing social media platforms for some of the political issues. But at the same time, he insists that we need further thorough research about these platforms to truly understand their impact. In the next segment, I speak with Joanna Bryson, a leading researcher in the field of artificial intelligence and ethics. She will take us through the challenges of regulating complex technologies such as artificial intelligence and how regulatory bodies are thinking about them. So let's start with the basic question uh, by understanding what artificial intelligence is. 
people mean a lot of different things when they talk about artificial intelligence. When we're thinking about what governments need to worry about, I think the real challenge is the digital revolution. I think it makes sense to use a very broad definition of artificial intelligence. I use the definition of intelligence, generating action from context. That's a form of computation. You're transforming information into an action of some, including inaction if you're inhibiting the time passes for an animal. Artificial intelligence in that case is doing that through an artifact. It doesn't have to be a computer. It could be a robot with no CPU, but that's very unlikely because you're going to do the perception using cameras and various kinds of sensors. And then you're going to use a CPU to process that information and generate or select the, the correct outcome. Quite often with AI, we also stop short of really making an action other than communicating the category to the human, and then the human is the one who does it. Uh, one of the key aspects of artificial intelligence is that it is coded and developed by human beings. So we tend to pass on our biases in that. Would you talk about bias being one of the issues that might potentially be part of the artificial intelligence that we might face because of AI? Bias is an interesting example. Let's first just focus on bias. Even within the case of bias, there's at least three ways that you can get bias into artificial intelligence. One is that only a small, limited set of people are building the AI that the whole world uses. And that tends to be, or at least is alleged to be, white and male and from California. Now, the truth is that people from all over the world aspire to go work in California, and many are allowed to. So there's a lot more diversity in California than that statement gives credit to. But there are certainly some companies that are very dominated by a relatively small demographic. And you can see that because of products that are released that had anybody tried it on themselves and not been completely white or completely male, they would have noticed there was a problem. There are biases that can be introduced through ignorance. There are also biases that come from the fact that the world isn't fair. It is different to be a man than a woman in terms of what it's like to be pregnant, how long it takes, your longevity, how drugs impact you. There's various things and there's nothing fair about that. It's just different. That's similar to languages. People say it's not fair that these minority languages, the AI is not as good as it is for English. Well, if you don't have as much data, there's not an easy way to compensate for that. Now, that's not an excuse. There's some languages, for example, Spanish, where there's enormous numbers of speakers, and there should be really great Spanish natural language tools. If there weren't, you'd have to say, well, what's going on here? It's not about the data. So I'm not trying to give people an excuse, but I'm just saying that, again, there's physical limits that are based on the fact that we're not all starting from a level playing field. So technology, especially if you train it using machine learning rather than programming, it tends to reflect the world from which it derives, and not just because of the biases in people's heads, but because of the fact the world is set up that way. People talk about artificial intelligence perpetuating colonial inequalities and unfairness. In a way, it's wrong to talk about artificial intelligence in that context. What you should really be complaining about is cultures or countries that are perpetuating these biases. And artificial intelligence is just one of the ways that we're expressing a problem. And yes, sometimes it may magnify it. Often it's reducing it. For example, biases in hiring. You could use artificial intelligence. You could detect and then replicate existing biases in hiring. But that's not what most people do. Most people use artificial intelligence to help them find the kind of people they know that they were overlooking to overcome their own human implicit biases. We can write code to do that kind of thing if we know when we want to. And this comes to my third and most important to me. The main one that I'm spending my attention on is deliberate bias. You can elect a government that doesn't want to represent the entire country. And they can say, these people over here, they're never going to vote for me. Let's stop spending money over there. And you can write code to hide that. Nobody is getting 
fascinating to see how the decisions are being made about who gets out of jail or who gets to vote or who gets welfare or disability payments. Unless there's a process in place that says, hey, this was a government requisition. We need to have a complete record of the code. We need to be able to check it. And it's the same for governments. It's the same for companies. There are definitely companies that are also owned by people with various political attitudes and companies just being sloppy. They're only worried about two years and they're selling products that are going to be around for five years. We need to uphold standard practices with respect to product safety. We need to make sure that people are performing due diligence, that they understand the state of the art of good practice, that the state of the art of bad practice. You are responsible to be a professional member of your community. Now, it's weird because people do not tend to practice this high of professionalism when they use artificial intelligence. Yet, people who also use AI for their software engineering tend to not follow the best practice. That's culpable in any other industry. But so far, people have been getting away, evading things because people are so confused. They get so excited about the fact that it's intelligent. It means it's human-like. Intelligent doesn't mean human-like. There's lots of species that are more or less intelligent than each other. And it doesn't mean that they're more or less human-like. That's what I am most concerned about. Now, is bias everything that can go wrong with AI? Absolutely not. There's a million other things. I'm very much worried about things like disruption of democracy, evasion of regulatory capacities, evasion of taxes. People these days set up these incredibly elaborate system of shell companies. Could you have done that without all these digital tools to keep track? So you have weird alliances, even between certain governments and certain organized crime. There's so many ways to do so many things. But do you want to call that AI? I'm not going to tell you that robots are going to take over the world. But I will tell you that if you think that it's the robot taking over the world, instead of thinking that it's either a corporation or a political actor taking over the world through the robot, either way, that's not the AI itself doing something. It's not useful to reason about artificial intelligence as the moral agent, the responsible party, because we can't hold machines to account. That's not how justice works. We've invented a system that was pretty good at stabilizing our own societies. So it's very important to remember that you don't want to talk about AI as an actor in itself, but you just recognize as we bring new technologies on board, how does that change what it means to defend a nation? What are the most logical and efficient responsibilities for a corporation versus the government versus the civic society? Who should have which roles? So talking about the ethics, ethics and artificial intelligence has been connected quite quite a bit. Could you please talk about why studying of ethics is important uh, when it comes to AI? Well, understanding ethics and obligations and how society works and how we retain security, including through human flourishing. Ethics is us trying to decide who we ought to be, who we want to be. I said the world isn't fair, not only because we're starting from an unfair point, but that some of the things we think of as characteristic of fairness are not compatible with each other. If we start out in a situation where not every demographic has the same access to power or wealth, then you have a couple of things you might think is fair. One is equality of access. If you work as hard, you take the same test score, then you should have equal opportunity to get into something. Another thing is equality of outcome. If you have 50-50 women and men in your population, then do you have as many women as men in these desired posts? The point is that you can't have both those things. If you didn't start in a state of perfect fairness, then you can't end in a world of perfect fairness without somehow interfering with opportunity. You can't have both equality of opportunity and equality of outcomes. That's just one example of things people find now intuitive. Certainly, there doesn't seem perfect, correct answers for quite a lot of other problems either. Instead, we can just keep trying to improve on the answers we've found so far. Why is it linking to AI? Well, there's nothing special about AI with respect to ethics. 
It's just that AI is a new technology we're trying to deal with. So like everything else, we should be thinking about ethics. But a lot of people think that the reason that AI is special with respect to ethics is because maybe we owe AI ethical obligation. If there was something we unethical to artificial intelligence, then the easiest solution would be to not build artificial intelligence that could suffer that harm. And people think that as soon as you have AI, you have something that's human and it has all the same rights and obligations. No, artificial intelligence can have none of the same obligations because you program it, you design it, you own it. But it's not like raising a child. It's not a co-worker. It's just much more restricted than that. And when they use these human-like metaphors, they also add in moral confusion. What we have seen, at least empirically in Germany, is that corporations that by and large invest in automating and, and artificial intelligence tend to also be the same corporations that invest in their employees and trying to make their employees more productive. We haven't seen this massive replacement at the corporate level. But I do worry that might not be what's happening at the national level, that some nations are making choices to invest in advanced technologies, believing that that will make them productive and, and secure, and then don't choose to invest in things like nationalized health. There may be nations that are making the kinds of trade-offs that people are worried are happening at the corporate level, which we don't see happening empirically. You were saying that artificial intelligence is something you can delegate decisions to. And I've been arguing really strongly for some time that you don't delegate the decision. You use the machine to enact a decision that you've chosen. You don't get to delegate the authority that you had. You only get to use tools to execute the approaches that you would have taken anyway. This is a mistake that we did see a lot in early automation, where people would cut off any capacity for customers to bypass this interface. Some people love to go to the web and click a bunch of forms and having to talk to a salesperson. But if there's no way by which you can bypass that when you have a harder problem, then you're not satisfied. In fact, you could be terribly constrained and the company loses the opportunity to find out about other businesses they could be doing. They're not only losing the opportunity to keep one customer happy, they're losing information about where they could have been going. If you look in a non-corporate setting like the military, you actually find that commanders are really surprised by the extent to which they are feeling more the burden of command. In theory, they were always the ones who were responsible. But now that there's some fewer people between them and an actual kill decision, all of a sudden they are actually picking who dies. Even though that in theory they always had it, they're actually feeling it more because there is less diffusion through other humans. We need to have more informed people so that we can understand that if you can't tell who's responsible, then that is itself culpable. There's always a human or a human organization that is responsible. We can only be obliged to each other. Let's a little bit move on to the regulatory side of these technologies because uh, artificial intelligence is extremely complex. A lot of governments do not have the capacity to understand very basic technologies. So artificial intelligence is like much more advanced. How do you think like the government capacity is going to help here? How do you think government should be approaching this continuously evolving technologies that has a very rapid pace? One of the very strong recommendations that I'm making is that people should be held accountable for doing due diligence and for good practice. And that's almost like the common law. It's something that keeps it getting improved. The morality can kind of keep up. The sector has an idea of what the morality is, as well as legislation coming in. I think small countries can only decide, do we allow the service to operate here or not? And even there, they don't have that much capacity to stop it except through means like we've seen with the European Union. 
If you have a large enough market that's harmonized, that collaborates on these things, then you can hold companies to account and say, this is what's necessary if you want to do business here. Now, notice even in the EU, you have problems like certain countries that are not charging adequate tax and are allowing people to do tax evasion. So there's various problems that even the EU is having coordinating. But I hope that the future will be more amalgamations of countries figuring out how to get on top of these kinds of things by joining coalitions. Countries come together and find out about competences so that they can learn good ways from each other about how to regulate. But they do have to cooperate with each other. I think if we get on top of the taxation problem, and you can tell there's just massively undertaxed then we can start talking about things like, well, could you provide some of your obligations in form of service? And, and can you help us with some things like cybersecurity? So we can start having interesting conversations about how to equalize that back out. But you've got to have a large enough regulatory area, which for a corporation means a large enough market that they want to get in. Well, that's one strategy. But we also are now seeing some global negotiations. Every government now is aligned with this. They're starting to realize that not just corporations, but individuals who take large amounts of money from these corporations is a problem that all governments share. So we have governance systems which have developed uh, over centuries now. The democracy we have today is a product of continuous evolution in the last decades, centuries. But uh, technologies such as uh, artificial intelligence, uh, other digital technologies have potential to disrupt all of these structures because the way we interact is changing, the way we organize ourselves as human beings is changing. How do you think artificial intelligence specifically has potential to change the governance system? Do we have the capacity to cope up with the pace of the changing technology and its impact? First, I think what challenges governments, governance structures the most is changing the cost of distance. If you look at what happened when, when people introduced horses to Europe, that also required massive changes in security and governance structure and everything else, because suddenly people could be somewhere really fast. And the telegraph, the last time we had this massive inequality that led to entropy and wars and everything, it was like oil and the telegraph and rail. And those were the new things that were creating massive wealth because they were so far under-regulated. I don't think it's really special to artificial intelligence and that it's only a disruptor. When we get on top of how to use it to do so, I think then artificial intelligence can be a means to help govern well. In fact, one of the things we all worry about is how do we defend ourselves from uh, surveillance? How do we maintain freedom of thought, freedom of expression? Well, I think it's the same way we maintain the privacy of the home. It's not that the police or the army can't get into your home. It's that you have an entire system of law that defends your home. And hopefully, if you're not too marginalized by your state, then if the state breaks into your house, it would upset a lot of people and you would have some kind of disruption. There would have to be some serious reason for the state to be in your house. We're going to have to have systems for detecting when we've been manipulated, when our data has been retained and exploited and deployed against us. I don't think it's something we're going to notice necessarily as individuals. I think we're going to need to use technology to defend the space of what it is to be human. But I do think we'll get on top of it. My metaphor is when you have a big disruption, you have a landslide or a flood or something, the first plants that come back are weeds. And they're fast movers, they're simple, they don't have very deep roots. But they are the ones that hold the ground together enough that a more rich ecosystem can come. And I think that we're in the process of now, we're back to trying to, the autocracy is kind of the weeds and, and the more complex democratic, even the more complex uh, hybrid autocratic democratic systems will, will come after afterwards. But I, I do think that this is ultimately an empowering technology for a stable long-term solution. People should be looking for how to make sure that we are human-centered and that humans can flourish. That was Professor Bryson. She helped us understand what AI is exactly and how it changes the technological landscape in the coming years. 
She also talks about how these technologies have the potential to encroach on our fundamental rights and how we need to use technology and new regulatory frameworks to tackle these issues. The second season of Over to Europe is produced by me Aniket Narawar and edited by Ricardo Colella, Civica Associate at Hutti School with the help of Civica Community. Music in this episode was created by Kevin McLeod. This podcast is funded by the German Academic Exchange Service. Subscribe and learn more at www.civica.eu/overtoeurope. Stay tuned for our next episode.